As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Breaking news from Kenosha as the district attorney says there will be no charges in the August police shooting that left Jacob Blake paralyzed. No justice! There's a glimpse of the knife. The far left is that knife in his hand. Jacob Blake admits that. Were you carrying a knife? Yeah, I had my knife. You had a knife on you? Yeah. They don't get it. We are watching this video. This is something that's recorded. We had a, an adult man that was shot in the back seven times. Is that seven shots excessive? Is that too many shots? We think that the 20 second video is very clear. We don't need a two hour explanation for what our eyes can see. This is a fear that this could happen to any one of us at any time and we should not have that fear. The investigation into a police shooting that sparked protests and riots in Kenosha is now complete. Hundreds of pages of records, squad car videos, and a hospital interview with Blake are now in the public domain. And that's not the only case where investigative records are coming to public light. After a year filled with protests and unrest over racial justice and police use of force, the new year offers us a chance to reflect on what really happened in Kenosha and Wauwatosa. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, January 12th. We're going to start with one of the biggest news stories of the new year so far. The decision not to charge Kenosha police officer Rustin Shesky or anyone else in the shooting that paralyzed Jacob Blake. And Brian, I know you went through hundreds of pages of public records that recently became available about this situation for people who haven't been following this. What what are the big things we need to know? Well, as, as if you're not even familiar with the Jacob Blake case or you need your memory refreshed on what happened, this was the case in Kenosha where there was a domestic disturbance or a call for a domestic incident. Police responded. They found Jacob Blake uh, outside. Uh, the call had come from the mother of his children, saying that he had her car keys, that he she thought he was going to leave in his car. He had at least one, if not more, of the children that they shared together in the car, and she feared that he was going to crash that car because he had crashed her cars in the past. That's what police are responding to. We also know now that uh, as officers responded, we didn't know this in the beginning, we do know for sure now, that they were aware when they responded that Jacob Blake had a felony warrant for his arrest, and that involved a an allegation of sexual assault against the same woman uh, that uh, was still pending. So he had uh, a, a felony warrant, and of course they're coming out with this concern that he might be leaving with her vehicle and possibly uh, taking kids. One of the things we've, we've, we've heard since all of this happened was that, uh, and that came out in this investigation, is that police 
may have viewed this as a potential Amber Alert situation, uh, that there was a child in the car. They don't know, is Jacob Blake about to take off, lead them on a high-speed chase with a child who's in danger? This is someone with a felony warrant. We now know he's someone with a, a history uh, of not complying with officers' uh, commands. So so that's, that's the sort of situation, the environment they're coming into. Now, what everyone has seen and what everyone knows best is the video that was recorded not by police, but by a witness, a cell phone video that shows Jacob Blake walking around the front of the car uh, and then uh, attempting to, it looks like, get in that vehicle with the driver's side door open, the police officer grabbing his shirt to try to keep him from getting in that vehicle and then firing seven shots that can clearly be heard in the video, and it appears he is firing those shots into Jacob Blake's back. That is the video that set off the firestorm of controversy, that set off the protests, ultimately the riots and the fires, and even eventually the conflict between an armed militia member and protesters that resulted in two deaths and one serious injury. So that was what essentially exploded in Kenosha this summer, uh, in August. And since then, we always hear in these situations, let's wait to see what the facts show. Let's wait to see what comes out. And Amanda, now the records are coming out. And the key this past week was the announcement that the Kenosha County District Attorney will not be filing any criminal charges against any of the officers involved, most notably Officer Rustin Shesky, who was the one who pulled the trigger. Right, so the State Department of Justice stepped in to do the investigation. And at the time when they gave that press conference a few days after the shooting, uh, the attorney general said, we try to have these investigations wrapped up in 30 days. We're going to try to do that. That isn't really, we didn't have concrete answers after 30 days. So what happened was the Department of Justice investigated. They turned over what they had to the district attorney who then makes the decision about charging. Uh, they brought in a, a special use of force expert and then this kind of dragged out until after the new year. So we've been waiting a, a really long time for answers. The district attorney gave a press conference that lasted two hours explaining this decision. But I think a lot of people were left with even more questions after the explanation of that decision. I know as I was watching the press conference, Brian, what struck me as a reporter was, on one hand, the district attorney is laying out kind of what you laid out here at the beginning. You know, the officers were worried he might be leaving with the kids. Was he going to lead them on a high-speed chase? And then after getting into all of that in quite some detail, the district attorney basically says, well, we can't bring charges because we believe that this officer was acting in self-defense. And acting in self-defense and, and fearing for your own life is very different than worrying about what might happen in a high-speed chase. Well, and that's something I think is important here because it's it's what we do. It's why I think it's important we have a podcast like this, Amanda, because you and I, as investigative reporters, a lot of times people ask me, well, what does it mean to be an investigative reporter? And, and the simplest way I can boil it down in a lot of cases is we take very complex subjects and, and mountains of information and try to distill them down into what is most important. And, and and I feel like that's a skill that I really had to apply here in going through more than 900 pages of investigative records. And, and I think if you, if you, you know, separate the wheat from the chafe here and you get down to 
what's the point? What was the real key question here? Um, it's not whether or not there was a felony warrant out for Jacob Blake. It's not whether or not, and we'll get into this, whether or not he necessarily possessed a knife, though that's certainly an important factor. The real key comes down to whether or not the officer, at the time he decided to use potentially deadly force, now Jacob Blake didn't die, he survived, but he was using uh, potentially deadly force. At the time he made that decision, did he have justification for doing so? And fearing that the uh, offender, Jacob Blake, might leave with a child in the car and create an Amber Alert situation is not justification to use deadly force. From a legal standpoint. From a legal standpoint, you can't, yeah, from a moral standpoint, maybe you can say, well, boy, they just should have shot him. They should shot, shoot all these people who take kids and, and, and try to run off with them. You, you, that you can't do that. If you're a law enforcement officer, there are legal standards, and, and you can't just shoot someone because you think they're going to take off in a car with a kid. Um, there are other options, and it does seem police tried to employ some of those here. They use tasers. Um, we know that Jacob Blake uh, remarkably pulled the taser prongs out of his body, possibly more than once, I believe, if I recall from reading the reports. Um, that certainly demonstrates to the officers that this is someone with extraordinary strength and resilience and willingness to resist officers' commands. When, when you're shot with a taser, it's pretty clear officers want you to stop and, and want you to uh, uh, not want you to keep going and try to take off. Um, so that played into it. But again, the key moment here, distilling all of it down, is the moment when Jacob Blake is entering the car. He has a knife in his hand, we now know. That's also something we did not know uh, throughout the course of, of the protests and everything else. There was some indication that there had been a knife found on the floorboard of the car. It was not clear if he, in fact, had a knife in his hand. We know now that not only did he, he's admitted to having had the knife on him. He dropped it at one point and actually went and picked it back up. The question, though, is... Was that knife being in his hand is not enough to, to justify deadly force on its own. Was he using it in a manner that gave the officer reason to believe that his life or safety was in immediate jeopardy? And if so, was that then justification for the use of deadly force? And the DA in his two hour long press conference made the point that what was most important to him is that Officer Shesky did not say I decided to use deadly force because he was leaving in the car with a child. He did not say, I decided to use deadly force because I saw a knife in his hand. He said, I, I the, the moment where I decided, the first moment I decided that I would use deadly force or that I, I needed to use deadly force is when he threatened me with the knife. And I don't know, those, that's a paraphrase. I don't, want, I don't have the exact words in front of me. But essentially, Officer Shesky's story to investigators was that as he was about to reach in the car or try to get in the car and had the knife in his hand that Jacob Blake turned or twisted his torso and that the knife was essentially being thrust at him as an officer. And that's when he decided to shoot. And what complicates this is we don't have body camera. Kenosha police were not outfitted with body cameras. We have, like you mentioned, that cell phone video, but... From watching that cell phone video, that action that Officer Shesky described was was not very clear. You did have if, if it happened, it it happened in such a split second that it's very very hard to discern uh, from that cell phone. Video. Right, and then you have you know, other witnesses giving conflicting information to that, but it basically comes down to the 
the police officer's word about what his intentions were. Right. And, and that's why if you had body cameras, it may not have uh, given us the clarity that we're suspecting it might have, but it could have given us a better idea of exactly what the officer saw. What was his view? What was he seeing? And did he have reason to believe that that knife, which was just a couple of feet away from him, could potentially be thrust at him? We know that Officer Shesky did tell investigators that the training is an armed suspect under 21 feet away. Someone who has a knife who's within 21 feet can act more quickly than an officer can respond to protect themselves. So this isn't 21 feet, it's two feet. And he said that that gave him reason to believe he was in, in real danger. So could a split-second turn of the torso from two feet away given the officer that justification? Well, that's what investigators here are saying. They're saying yes, that, that that's the case. Again, would a body camera have shown us if there was any movement toward Officer Shesky? We know Jacob Blake has said he did nothing like that. He said he never lunged at or he never you know, did anything. He never had any intention of using the knife to harm the officer. And, and it's easy for anyone from the outside to judge that one way or another. We don't know what was in his mind at that moment. So what would the video have shown? Would a closer video from the officer's point of view have given us a clear picture of whether or not that knife appeared to be coming at the officer, or whether or not there appeared to be even a split second appearance that he was uh, using aggression with the weapon toward the officer or threatening him in some way. We just don't know because all we can see is what's in that cell phone video shot from a distance at an angle. And there's a lot of discussion whenever a, a decision like this comes down to not charge an officer or officers uh, with the use of in the use of deadly force. There's a lot of focus on that decision to not charge. What often gets lost is the focus on what the laws say and, and whether those laws should stay the same, whether they're they're doing their job or whether they should be changed. So Governor Tony Evers seems to be of the mindset that Wisconsin could use updated uh, laws surrounding police use of force. He called a special session on that with the state legislature. State legislature basically said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to gavel in and gavel out, and we're going to take this up in January. It's now January. The legislature's in session. They're focused right now on passing a bill related to COVID-19. But it will be interesting to see if there's an appetite to take up any idea of, of possible reform in Wisconsin law, because time and time again, when you hear district attorneys explaining their decisions to charge or not charge, a lot of times it sounds like my hands are tied. This is what the law says I can do. And I have a responsibility to only bring cases that I think I can win. There's there's a, a lot that may come out of this in terms of calls for reform and change. But obviously, none of that is going to satisfy those that think this is another example of uh, of uh, officers who uh, use excessive force uh, against, uh, you know, especially a white officer using excessive force against a black suspect or a black individual. Um, it, it, the sort of after the fact reforms don't really uh, feel to a lot of those people like justice. And we obviously saw uh, the reaction this summer. What's been interesting is to see uh, I, I think there was a lot of bracing for similar, uh, you know, waves of protests and maybe more rioting and looting and other sorts of things. But we haven't seen that, interestingly enough, uh, this time around. What do you think, Amanda, is going on there? Is it just a matter of uh, sort of 
you know, this was maybe what many expected. Was it, is it, is it time of year because it's colder out and, you know, in the summer, more people are willing to go and spend time outside and, and the crowds get ramped up. We, we just haven't seen the, uh, the kind of reaction to the decision that maybe some thought we might, uh, and certainly that we saw back in August. I think there are a lot of different factors. First of all, keep in mind that the shooting of Jacob Blake happened only mere months after the shooting and killing of George Floyd, which sparked national protests. So we were just coming off of other protests in in our own community about police community relations and police use of force generally. And then right after that, you have the shooting of Jacob Blake. It was also warm. The, the weather was nice. Um, and, and then it, it was the immediacy of it. With this, several months have passed. Uh, like you mentioned, Brian, the weather isn't exactly conducive to long nights of protesting right now. And I, I think there's been so much that has happened since then in, in the world, especially as, as related to COVID-19, that the, the reaction is, is different. And actually, there have been accusations, because um, there still have been protests, and we've covered them since this decision to not charge Officer Shesky or anyone else in the shooting of Jacob Blake. And there have been accusations that the district attorney and even the Department of Justice deliberately dragged this out so the decision would come in colder months when maybe they wouldn't have to deal with with protests like this. We, we certainly well, don't. And not just colder months, but you look at what the timing of this was. It came out uh, just as the, the country was focused on the Georgia runoff elections and control of the Senate um, and, and, and the, the electoral vote uh, uh, securing the presidency for uh, for Joe Biden. And then, of course, obviously, we know what happened with that, with the, uh, you know, the, the breach of the U.S. Capitol and all the fallout there. It seems like a lot of other things have been going on that have maybe drawn away, certainly the national attention anyway, from right. what, that might have otherwise been focused on Kenosha. So maybe this is more of a local reaction that hasn't had the fuel of national attention because of all of the other distractions. That's right. And I, I after the the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha where we saw you know that mix of there were certainly peaceful protests but there was also violence there was destruction of property uh there there was a situation uh for those of you who haven't been following it where a 17 year old from out of state came to the protest uh armed to quote uh, you know help keep things under control and he ended up shooting and and killing. And so that trial's going on. So there's there's a lot that's gone on to to add fuel to this. Um, but then so much has happened since then to to take that fuel away. What I think will be interesting is is to see what happens next. If this is something that kind of disappears until a new situation with police use of force happens, as you, you know it's going to eventually at some point, uh, or if, if this is something that ends up picking up momentum in the legislature. I want to go back for a moment to the question of body cameras, because as we were talking about that, one other thing that would have uh, potentially changed what we know or don't know here, and the district attorney raised this in his 
uh, in his two-hour presentation uh, announcing that there would be no charges. And that was the question of whether or not the number of shots fired at Jacob Blake was excessive. So even if you could say that, yes, there was a threat to the officer's life, was it necessary to shoot seven times? And that is a question that investigators in cases like this will explore. And, and one of the things we know is that the uh, officer's uh, statement is that he shot until he saw Jacob Blake drop the knife. And officers are, in fact, trained. And Noble Ray, the former Madison police chief who was the special investigator in charge of, uh, of this case, uh, said that you know, officers are trained to shoot until a threat has stopped. And so if he, he felt the knife was the threat, then seeing the knife dropped uh, may well have been, or waiting, shooting until the knife was dropped may well have been justified. Um, what we don't know is when did Jacob drop the knife? Was it still in his hand when the shooting began? Was it still in his hand after the first shot? Was it still in his hand after the sixth or seventh shot? And that we don't know because we can't see that in that cell phone video. That's another thing body cams might have answered. And, and so that even if there was a justification for beginning to shoot, was there a justification to shoot seven times uh, at someone facing away from you? Um, th that's a question we won't know again. And, and I bring up body cameras because we know that both the city and county of Kenosha have since voted to uh, spend money on body cameras. So while that's not going to satisfy those who want to see justice in this case, and, and in that form, they, they think justice means action against those officers or criminal charges, it will mean that in the future, in theory, if they go through with these, if they get these body cams and they're equipped, that a similar situation like this, that kind of evidence should exist. Another big story about officer use of force has been happening in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. So Joseph Mensa is a police officer. He is no longer with the department, but he shot and killed three people in the line of duty since 2015, including a black teenager outside of a shopping mall in February. And officer Joseph Mensa himself is black. So that created uh, an interesting layer to this entire situation. But while this was ongoing, while his use of force was being investigated, there were many protests in Wabatosa, uh, and there was a decision that came down from the M Milwaukee County District Attorney that he was not going to criminally charge Officer Mensa. That sparked an entire new wave of protests, and it sparked uh, a lot of discussion surrounding uh, curfews that municipalities impose when they're trying to keep order when there are protests that are going on. So just on Friday, we received a whole bunch of documents, hundreds of pages, hours of video, and going through that has been quite the task. Brian, I know this is a, a story you've had a lot of questions about. I've been going through some of the documentation since Friday, and we're starting to at least get a, a clearer picture of the citations that police were issuing and, and what they were seeing at the time. Well, and this really speaks to the, 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 the bigger question that we've seen across the country of sort of the rights of the public to protest, to, to march, to have their voices heard, um, and the sort of 
balance between that and police trying to keep maintain peace and order in their communities. After what happened in Kenosha in August, Wauwatosa police uh, and, and the mayor and others said that they were particularly interested in trying not to see that sort of destruction and, 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 and uh, you know, violence and rioting and other things occur in their community. And as unrest built over calls for the firing of Officer Joseph Mensa and whether or not Officer Mensa should be criminally charged, um, as, as all of that ramped up, the city was trying to keep a cap on some of the nighttime and overnight protests. So they instituted, as many communities did across the country this summer, a curfew. Uh, you know, after a certain time, uh, you know, the, the public needs to go home and, um, you know, you, know, you can you can protest, you can peacefully march, you can do that all day long, you can do it all evening long, but at a certain point you've got to go home. Now, of course, many people aren't going to abide by that, especially people who are passionate about these protests. They were protesting and marching, in, in some cases, all night long and later into the night. And, and in doing so, we as members of the media need to be there to cover that so that people at home can see what's going on in their community, so we can see how those protesters are interacting with police, how police are treating people who are on the street. And uh, it's long been an accepted practice in this country and understood that the media has a job to do and, and is allowed to to do that. So um, there's sort of, to some degree, an assumption, and, and I, obviously there's a, an argument of the, the First Amendment right to be there to perform those duties. But then for police officers, and we've covered this, Amanda, they have still that question of how do we know who the media members are? And, and how do we know who has a right to be there and who doesn't? Now, Wauwatosa did create an exemption for members of the media to be out covering protests after curfew. Um, the, their curfew order had a specific carve-out for credentialed members of the media. And that raises that question, what is a credentialed member of the media? Um, and, and is that enforceable? It raises all sorts of questions. So where do you draw the line? Because we talked about it at length uh, before uh, today, uh, Amanda, that, you know, you might be talking about citizen journalists who have done a lot of coverage of the ongoing protests all over the country this year um, who don't belong to a traditional media organization. They may not have credentials that belong to Fox or CNN or NBC or some other network or something like that or a newspaper but they're doing important journalistic work. So where do police draw the line? I know that wasn't the only question in the records you looked at, but that's certainly a big one uh, that, that uh, happened here because there were several members of, or at least people who claimed to be members of the media who were arrested for violating curfew. Basically what happened was Wabatosa police did this massive data dump. <laughs> and part of the, the issue with that is it it's not clear exactly what parameters they always used for releasing information. They said it was in response to multiple open records requests, but you don't know what other people requested. So that was kind of the first hurdle with going through some of these documents. And by the way, still going through them, still hundreds of more pages. But I basically spent my day on Friday going through the citations that police released that they issued. Again, police weren't exactly clear on which citations they were releasing. So are these all the citations related to the protesting? It It's not entirely clear. But going through and, and pulling all the data from that and, and seeing the, the kinds of trends we could find. So between July 2nd, 2020 and October 13th, 2020, police issued 
66 citations to 44 people, and it appears as though all those citations are related to the protests. So certainly in that time, I'm, I'm sure other people got citations for lots of other things, but these were all appeared to be specifically related to the protests. A little more than a third of those were for violation of an emergency order, which in this case includes the curfew. So there were 24 of those citations that were issued. Uh, the bulk of citations happened on the night of October 8th, 2020, and that was also the first night of the emergency curfew order, so so that made sense to me. Um, if, if you're going down the list of most common citations, in second place, citations for not having a special event permit, that's basically you're, you're blocking traffic without a permit, which if you read the, the narratives on all these citations, police were making it a point to say that the people they were citing were obstructing traffic, in one case, a Milwaukee County Transit bus that couldn't get through without having the appropriate permit to close off the streets. And then in third place, we had citations for obstructing or giving false information to an officer. So this was primarily obstruction. People putting their bodies in front of squads so they couldn't leave or directing other protesters to surround police or surround squads so they couldn't leave. Police said that interfered with our ability to police, which is why we felt we could cite these people uh, with uh, obstruction. There were also several citations that were referred to the district attorney's office for charges. Uh, from what I read, it, it doesn't look like the district attorney took up a whole lot, if any of those, that I could find, but I'm still digging through the data on that. We also know from going through those citations that w this isn't a case of a bunch of people coming in from out of state and wreaking havoc, and then they're getting citations. The vast majority of the citations went to people who have Milwaukee addresses, 49 out of the 66. No citations went to anyone out of state, and the furthest away I could find were three citations that went to people from Madison, but everything else was in in this specific area, um, perhaps. So, and we know that one of the people who was arrested for violating curfew and probably one of the most notable and potentially controversial was the mother of Alvin Cole, who was one of the people who had been shot by Officer Joseph Mensa back in February. She was uh, in the process of, of being arrested when uh, other members of the media were recording what was going on. And we have reported on what happened then when officers turned on uh, Richie McGinnis, who is a reporter, a journalist for The Daily Caller, and uh, ordered him to leave uh, the scene. Um, he tried to show his credentials. He is, in fact, a credentialed member of the media, but uh, the video we've seen that he provided us, that The Daily Caller provided us, uh, uh, shows officers uh, tackling him to the ground and arresting him, and he was uh, cited for uh, violating that emergency order. That was later dismissed. There was another Daily Caller reporter or, or journalist who also had their citation dismissed once it was clear that they were credentialed members of the media. But there were two others who were arrested who were college journalists and did not have any particular credentials or belong to any particular organization. Um, and so it's not clear to me at this point if their citations 
uh, were upheld or what the status is of that, but I know that it raised that question of where you draw the line on who's allowed to be there and, and sort of act as a journalist covering what's clearly a newsworthy situation. Right, and what we know from from this, what, what this tells us, this data, is that there were, there were certainly more arrests than there were citations. So someone can be arrested initially and then, and then let go. They're not cited. Police realize they can't charge the person, whatever happens. Um, so interestingly enough, when I was going through the citations, there, there wasn't anything for uh, Tracy Cole, the mother of Alvin Cole. And uh, there were other people who we knew had been arrested who didn't appear on this list of citations. Again, that's hard to compare because police have not given us the the list of criteria they used for deciding what citations to release to us. But over that several day span, we know police made about 60 or so arrests. And here we have 66 citations between July and October. So so more arrests than citations that we can see, at least at this point. The bottom line of all of this is it's clear Wauwatosa was trying to keep a lid and keep the peace, but the question is, did they go too far? Did they violate people's rights uh, who, who had the right to be there? And certainly there are, when it comes to the questions of, of journalists, there's that question of, of constitutional rights to be there uh, reporting. And, and a lot of times when we talk about this, I, I always fear and I always worry that the perception is, yeah, yeah, you journalists are talking about yourselves. This is inside baseball. But I think the importance of of the media being there, especially for some of these overnight protests and other things, is the vast majority of our viewers and the people who rely on us and the listeners to this podcast can't and don't want to get up at you know midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and go to a protest scene and witness firsthand for themselves what's going on on a public street. We are able to be their eyes and ears there so they can see what's happening. They can see how police are interacting. They can see sometimes when it's the protesters who are behaving badly— Maybe they are looting. Maybe they are rioting. Maybe they are setting fires. It's our job. It's our duty to be there recording that. And I've heard from many people who are the citizen journalists who really emerged this year as some of the sort of stars of the show because they were the ones who were right up front to see Kyle Rittenhouse fire his gun at protesters who were pursuing him. Uh, obviously a case that's still ongoing, but but garnered international attention. Um, they are the ones that are able to, in some ways, infiltrate these groups because they're trusted, because they don't look like traditional media, so they, aren't, they don't have a target on their backs. And they're getting some of that firsthand video and sound and reporting it back to, to all of the rest of us so that we, sitting in our living rooms or bedrooms, can pull up on our cell phone uh, live images of what's going on right now in a very critical situation. That's why it's so important that the media be there. And, and the question is, you know, if you draw the line too tightly on who is allowed to be considered media, do you cut the public off from seeing some of that key stuff? Would we have ever seen what happened between Kyle Rittenhouse and those protesters were it not for citizen journalists who were on the front lines? Right. And as, as we've discussed with the Jacob Blake scenario and what happened in Wauwatosa, Having that video and having th that evidence of, of what happened is really powerful. It doesn't always give you all the answers, but it can certainly provide more context to a situation and it can help determine how everything unfolds. So we still have a lot of questions about what happened in Kenosha, about what happened in Wabatosa. Of course, we're going to continue bringing you updates as we learn more about that, as we cover police community relations, the pandemic, 
and so much more. So if there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email. You can send your emails to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that's fox, the number six, investigators at fox.com. And as always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. With that, I'm Brian Polson, And for Amanda St. Hilaire, we will talk to you again on Thursday. Thursday.